welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences and Dr. Steve Wood. Excited for this podcast that this is a, a topic that I've been getting into a lot more and I, you know, I'm excited to have our guests on today to talk more about it and that podcast topic being deep fakes today and to help join me to talk about deep fakes and talk about a lot of the other stuff that's going on as far as from a technology standpoint in the courtroom. I have Fred Letterer. Fred is Chancellor Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Legal and Court Technology at William and Mary School in Williamsburg, Virginia. Uh, Professor Leader has a lot of areas of expertise, evidence, trial practice, military law, legal technology. And one of the main ones I brought him on to talk to about today is, is AI and how that has an influence in the courtroom. Uh, Fred is also an author of various books, numerous books, and a few education, law, education, television series shows. So Fred, happy to have you on you. Thanks for, thanks for joining the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us, Steve. Yes. And, and, and now, and uh, one of my other hosts here, or one of my other, uh, one of my other guests here today is Daniel Shin. Daniel is a cybersecurity researcher at the center CLCT, as you guys refer to it, right? Center for legal and court technology. Mm -hmm. Daniel, thanks for joining the podcast as well. I'm, I'm happy to have you on here to talk about deep fakes. I'm quite excited to be here. Thank you. Thanks. And, you know, before we get started, really what I want to do is I want to talk about the center itself. What's the history of the center, uh, Fred? You know, what I know, I know it's kind of started off as something else and it's kind of morphed, but you guys are doing a lot of cool stuff there. So what's kind of the history of the center? We've, we've founded the Center for Legal and Court Technology, as you put it, CLC. T formally, which means there's a prior history as well, in August of 1993. In those days, we were the Courtroom 21 Project, standing for the courtroom of the 21st century today. As the years passed and our activities expanded and we went to a new century, we became the Center for Legal and Court Technology. Briefly, our original primary focus was how to use technology to improve trials and hearings, civil, criminal, federal, administrative, and so on. And then as life went on, we expanded into the topic of the interrelationship uh, between law and modern technologies, particularly artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. And I'd love that, note that uh, Daniel, who is among many things, a research scientist here, uh, is an extraordinarily knowledgeable and skilled expert on most of the technology subjects, as well as being a first-class lawyer. And Daniel, so, you know, our, as far as AI and all, all that stuff goes, I mean, how, what's kind of your experience? I mean, are, are you, are you able to, you know, are you do, do, do coding and all that stuff too? Or, you, you know, what is your kind of your experience with AI and, and all of the different areas that it relates to? Sure, uh, Steve, I do know programming and I use all the technical sort of knowledge uh, to supplement uh, research and studies. But with respect to AI, uh, it's not like I craft an AI model from scratch. On a lot of cases, uh, what happens is uh, for a lot of the open source publicly available uh, models out there, such as on GitHub, which is a very popular code repository online, um, I'm able to download the model, download all the uh, relevant code uh, that interfaces with the model and uh, experiment with what um, 
AI researchers, usually at uh, universities around the world, have uh, done in terms of doing all the, uh, the AI functionality locally on my computer. Uh, this is distinguishing from a lot of the AI services that you see online, like ChatGPT, yeah. which uh, it, you know the OpenAI. Uh, it, you use those models uh, by running it on OpenAI's model uh, servers online. Um, my focus is more on uh, AI models that you can run on, you know, personal computers, high-end personal computers sometimes, uh, but that uh, raises some interesting uh, issues. Yeah. Now, Steve, consider, please keep in mind that our primary focus is the legal and public policy implications of all this. So, though Daniel is very, very skilled as a technologist, it's her it's his ability to understand how this all works, how it fits together, working with our other colleagues that allow us to do what we do, which includes, by the way, we have, Daniel puts out a periodic uh, cybersecurity newsletter, um, which your listeners and viewers are certainly welcome to ask for copies, just send us an email. We also put out a probably about twice a year in AI newsletter as well. This is all part of what we're doing. That's, that's, that's excellent. You know, and I'm going to talk more too towards the end of, of the podcast about all the other stuff you're doing. Like I said, mm -hmm. I know you guys are, are doing a lot of things. You know, you're, the McLaughlin courtroom has a lot of stuff that we want to touch on as well. Um, you know, but I want to, I want to talk about deep fakes first and, and then mm -hmm. we'll, we'll make sure we circle back that, you know, but I guess just generally for our audience, who, who doesn't know what deep fakes are, you know, Daniel, what, what, what are deep fakes? What are just kind of, what are they? And, and what is kind of the, the background and history of it? The, the current definition uh, for deep fakes, I would say is synthesized uh, realistic looking data, but that are simply synthesized or fake. Um, and initially when deep, fakes started to really emerge back in 2018. Um, and we actually were the first, arguably the first law school to do a deep fake demonstration when it was like a face swap um, uh, type of a medium where um, somebody online uh, and this person uh, just devised a, a bunch of, you know, code, AI code, machine learning code to that ultimately allows uh, a user to um, take a face of one person and then paste it into a video scene of a different person in a very photorealistic way. And at that time, deep fakes were understood as uh, a video where um, using some machine learning technologies uh, somebody is able to uh, paste uh, a person's face into a different video, uh, a, a, a target video uh, context in a photorealistic way. But that kind of started the whole deep fake um, frenzy, so to speak. But it has expanded to other types of media. For, uh, for example, we have seen a lot of instances of voice uh, synthesis text to uh, voice synthesis where you provide a text. And if you have a voice of somebody, you can have the AI model uh, take attributes or characteristics of that target voice and produce an audio clip of the text using that person's voice. 
you can also have voice uh, mimicry where uh, the AI model will mimic somebody speaking uh, just based on pure audio. It also, I think arguably, um, you know, ChatGPT introduces what you consider to be text deepfakes, or there are instances where on Amazon, uh, people generated fake travel books uh, using ChatGPT. Um, they're, they're not real books because the AI model a lot of times hallucinates, or as they say, um, produces texts that are convincingly real, uh, that purports to say something truthful, but in fact, it is making up facts or is fictitious. Finally, uh, the most concerning part about deepfakes, especially in the pornographic context, is the text-to-image uh, AI models where uh, most recently, I think Stable Diffusion is an, is, a, is an open source model you can download on, on your computer and generate all types of images without any restrictions. And I mean, all types of images. So uh, deepfakes have uh, evolved over time uh, in the past couple of years. Yeah, I think it's worth I, noting, yeah. with apologies for interrupting here, no, no. that one of the more recent scams that apparently is spreading um, is the use of AI to create realistic but false um, voices so that uh, people, particularly older people, get calls purporting to be from their grandchildren uh, saying, help, I need money and the rest. And it sounds just like the child because they have found a sample of the actual voice and then using the technology that Daniel just spoken about is they have composed or had the computer compose this entire fake uh, statement. And I think that's one thing I want to talk about, Fred, because, you know, my, as we talked before we got on in my in my experience with deep fakes has been more just kind of a joking manner. Like uh, there's a lot of them out there with Arnold Schwarzenegger, where Arnold Schwarzenegger gets put into all these different mm. famous scenes and movies, you know, but there's a lot more there's a lot more nefarious uses for it, as you talked about with the phone calls, the robocalls and, and trying to get information. But I think there's other stuff, too, that that Daniel kind of touched on. Do you want to talk a little bit about what are the other kind of legal aspects that have been emerging as it relates to deep fakes and evidence and, and how people are presenting that. I think the dilemma that we're now facing in the legal system is that we know the technology exists. We also know that we are using audio and video in particular in what appears to be a huge number of our cases of all types. Um, we often say, sometimes jokingly, quite seriously in others, that almost nothing can happen in the current world without someone pulling out a phone and recording it. And then in court, Your Honor, it's all on my phone. I'd like to show it in one form or the other. And when we design courtrooms, you know, that's one of the things we have to keep in mind. The question of the impact of all this has not yet really hit us. And there are two ways of looking at it, and I'll try to be brief. The first is from the perspective of the evidence rules, and I can talk about those if, if you have any interest. The second, which is far more important ultimately, is what happens when not just judges, but our population that will make up our jury pool, frankly, don't believe anything they see or hear. And it is quite probable that we'll be encountering that over the next few years. 
At that point, the burden of proof to convince someone that what they're seeing or hearing has not been composed by technology is going to be rather extraordinarily difficult. Yeah, and I do, I do want to talk about from an evidentiary standpoint, I think it would be interesting as far as admissibility. And that's one of the things, right, is whether the judge is going to allow the allow the evidence to come in or what kind of the federal rules of evidence or the you know rules of evidence are around that. I know some states are have rules, some states don't. What are the kind of, at least from that evidential aspect, um, are, are they facing? Well, under general, we, we have two different areas that come into play directly and some others that are indirect. To authenticate evidence traditionally has been to show that this is likely to be what we say it is. In the language of Federal Rule of Evidence 901A, there is evidence sufficient to support a finding that this is what it purports to be. 901B has a non-exhaustive list of examples. The dilemma here is, how do you necessarily prove that something is what it purports to be? The classic traditional way and the most used and simplistic is a witness with knowledge. The witness says, that's correct. That's, I saw it, I was there, this is it. That, of course, might be untruthful. It might be entirely truthful. It might be truthful and a mistake. Now, let me take a minute, if you have time, to deal with that. Sure. And this is, this is something I don't think that most of us have thought enough about, but it may be that with your expertise that you have. Suppose we had a photograph of a scene and it include an automobile with a license plate. We ask the witness um, to describe the scene. Then we show you what's previously marked as plaintiff's exhibit five for identification. What is it? Oh, that's a picture of the scene. And is this accurate? Oh, absolutely. Unbeknownst to the witness, someone has used technology to change the license plate number. Very few people would focus in the real world on the license plate, they would be able to say, yes, this is the entire picture. We have now had a truthful witness mistakenly authenticate a photograph that contains critical but erroneous data. That could happen. So, Daniel, I mean, what do you do in that situation? What is what is the, the courts? What are the attorneys? What is what's kind of the if, if anything, what's the solution for that? I think the immediate uh, response would be is the importance of chain and chain of custody of the of the digital evidence that's brought into court, uh, making sure that the evidence, uh, whether it's a picture or video, has not had the opportunity to be tampered with when it was first obtained. The issue that deep fakes uh, present, uh, however, is that somebody may have planted that evidence. Uh, if it was a security camera footage, for example, a skillful or a person with sufficient access credentials could have easily taken the original video, manipulated using deepfake technology, and then swap it, um, making sure there's no evidence of tampering. And, and then when uh, the police 
collects the evidence or uh, whoever, um, you know, the chain of custody starts at the point of collection, but not at the point when the uh, data was created. So deep fakes present an, uh, an intriguing issue where I think in, under most circumstances, chain of custody may not be sufficient to fully authenticate the truth uh, fullness of, uh, of a collected digital evidence. Um, I will just add though, that it is not doom and gloom, even though if deepfakes are able to, and we're at a point, I will say, for image synthesis, for certain video synthesis, yes, there are certain um, AI models where you can write a description of a video clip and it would actually generate a short, bizarre looking video. But down the road, um, we need to assume that uh, we will have the technology to create indistinguishable media. Let's put that as a given. Is that the end of the world? No, because uh, Adobe and other companies, for example, are develop has devised ways to um, essentially authenticate the data at the moment of creation. So think about when you're taking a picture or you're taking a video footage. Um, using hashing algorithms, which are basically ways to measure uh, the characteristics of the data. Using hashing algorithms, uh, when the data is first created, when you take the first photo or the video, you can embed a cryptographic uh, proof that the data is what it is when it was created. And if somebody tries to alter the data afterwards, the cryptographic hash uh, uh, will indicate that data has been altered. So that movement of authenticating evidence at the moment of creation has been gaining traction in response to the unique threat that deepfakes present itself. You know, Fred, I, I want to talk about that too, because not only is it a matter of whether or not someone has, has actually altered it, but there's been a couple legal cases and you can talk about them if, if you want is you know where defendants have actually said this is a deep fake i didn't actually say that you know tesla and in the a couple of the defendants in the january 6th um capital riots they basically tried to say these this information or this data is deep fakes right if i recall yes i think elon musk uh who is i think in the in the humor uh, side of YouTube is sort of the target of uh, many, uh, you know, many deepfake creators. And I think that there's one um, Chinese YouTuber uh, who, you know, deepfakes himself as uh, Elon Musk, you know, just for a humorous uh, content. I think the problem is, is that when they made the claim that the, they were victims of deepfake, uh, it, I think the the technology to create such indistinguishable uh, media was not widely available. Um, and it, just to be clear, um, many of whatever deepfakes we're talking about, they take a lot of computational uh, power. In simplest terms, you're talking about buying a personal PC with a GPU, which is a graphical um, unit uh, processor mostly used for uh, producing 3D graphics or, or gaming on a PC, uh, they, at a minimum, it's going to be over a, maybe $1,500 just off of my top of my head. You need to have expensive equipment 
to generate really good looking deep fake media at a given, or you can't do it. Yes, you can use cloud computing, but that requires additional technical knowledge. So a lot of those earlier allegations that whatever evidence has been presented against the, um, the plaintiffs, that the evidence is a deep fake, I'm a little bit uh, skeptical on, on that front. One other data point that I can provide is uh, allegedly um, Russia-affiliated groups online um, produced a deepfake video of the Ukrainian president, President Zelensky, about something about you know surrendering to the Russian forces. Uh, the video is basically you know com combining the the voice deepfake of President Zelensky speaking, we should surrender to the uh, the, the Russian uh, forces, as well as matching the lip movement to match the synthesized audio. Was the video convincing? Absolutely not, because whoever created that deepfake first didn't have the computing computer uh, equipment or the, the resources to do it. But second, they were really not experts at creating the data. Moving forward, I think that changes the game, but retroactively looking in the past allegations of deep fakes, I don't think people had access to the expertise and the computer, computer resources to create that level of convincing deep fakes. It's probably worth noting that speaking as Daniel's favorite guinea pig, uh, it is possible to do very persuasive, convincing fakes. Um, it's not clear to me that it's necessarily helpful, but it might be to just note that at least up to the moment, we are actually replicating uh, what's been going on in the legal system for literally generations. We have had expert forgers in existence as far back as we've had writing. And I've never bothered to look up a case, but undoubtedly they're there in any number, where individuals claim that important writings dealing with contracts and property and so on had been fabricated or altered in some important respect. We certainly knew we had people who could imitate people's handwriting flawlessly. However, the number of people who could do this and do so accurately and well enough and were in the right place at the right time were relatively few. That's pretty much where we are at the moment. The technology is easier, if you will, uh, to obtain and use than the number probably of expert forgers used to be. But right now, someone like Daniel and many others have a reasonable chance of being able to detect what otherwise might be a fairly persuasive deep fake. Our dilemma is it, this is not likely to continue. In the future, we are likely to get better and better false exhibits, and it will become increasingly difficult to determine what the truth is if we do not have other evidence of contents. And that's going to be a problem. And if we ever reach quantum computing properly, then that may simply mean we won't be able to ever tell the difference. You know, and that's what I wanted to talk about too, is uh, Fred, as far as from a juror's perspective, because, you know, a lot of jurors, as you said, pull out, you know, you, every time something happens, people pull out their phones. And I guess the question is then, 
how do attorneys, how do judges, how do, how does the legal community moving forward? Like, what is it then that they should be doing or what is it the things they should be focusing on to make sure that, you know, they're authenticating evidence and that they're making sure they're explaining to jurors about this kind of concept of deep fakes. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of education that needs to go on first, but what is kind of the going forward? I think you've just summarized the situation. Without quoting the individual, some years ago, a representative of a major technology company came to us, and we've never let him forget what he said. And the verbatim quote goes, as we understand it, most judges and lawyers don't understand much about technology, and worse, they're proud of it. And based on our experience in law school, most of our law students know very little at all. Uh, only yesterday, I asked one of my classes, as I often do over the year, can anyone explain to me how email works? On average, I get one to two people out of a class who will put up a hand, and when called on, they generally can't explain. So our first problem is that we need the legal community to spend more effort than they have done in the past to understand the technology, understand the weaknesses, know when and how to look for people to determine, help them determine if this is real and help them to prove it or disprove as the case may be. Secondly, of course, it appears, at least to me, that we are going to have yet again an increased emphasis on eyewitness testimony in the hopes that we have the ability to determine uh, whether the witness is being accurate or not. That, again, is an area of expertise that you have. Personally, I've never had much faith in demeanor evidence, either as a trial lawyer or as a trial judge. <laughs> Well, but I think that's a different topic. Well, I think it's interesting that you do talk about having more uh, faith or having to rely more on witness testimony. I mean, but then at the same time, you have if you have a video that shows one thing and you have your mm -hmm. eyewitness that's saying that's not how it happened. It's like, well, or that's not who that was. You say, well, here's the video. Then you have a problem with that, too, because now you have mm -hmm. humans that can lie. But also now you have computers that can lie. So isn't it a wonderful new world? It is it's a wonderful new world. So I guess, Daniel, you know, we talk about it, it's all not doom and gloom, but I mean, I guess, is there things that are currently being done right now to help with that, uh, you know, as far as any sort of um, litigation or whether there's any laws that are being made to kind of help with this? I think the issue is less with law at the moment. Um, the key to kind of being resilient against this, you know, evolving um, issue. I wouldn't call it a threat necessarily because there are some positive applications of deep fakes, although uh, they may be narrow, um, is combating against misinformation about deep fakes in the first place. I think a lot of people who raise the issue that certain evidence presented against them, for example, were, you know, a product of a deep fake creation don't know what they're talking about or cannot at a minimum identify what tools or what processes have been used to create the deep fake uh you know evidence um presented at trial um you know there is a, is a, there is a lot of complicated process 
Um, there's a lot of algorithms. Uh, there's a lot of data that's involved in creating all these deep fake. And as you kind of explore the world of how do you create a face swap video or, or the photo um, or photos of, of things or persons, um, you start to appreciate um, the immense amount of work that academia put into this technology, but also there are you recognize the limitations of these deepfake tools. Um, the reason why deepfakes have developed rapidly over the years, and it seems to be this um, unstoppable force, is because a lot of these tools and uh, and these algorithms were now is overtaken by open source developers who are very enthusiastic about the technology. So they're constantly identifying certain limits about these deep fake tools and trying to overcome it. Um, ways to become resilient against this trend is to be aware of what are the current limitations of these uh, deep fake tools and use that um, to really know how to start spotting or what are some of the problems uh, these tools uh, exhibit. For example, stable diffusion, which is a model where you can produce, uh, provide a text of an image you want it to generate. Um, it, stable diffusion is really good at generating photorealistic um, um, you know, uh, images, but one of the initial uh, problem it, it had was it was bad at generating hands. People who are um, you're listening to audio, um, I'm just presenting my hands. I have five fingers each. But stable diffusion, uh, the 1.5 um, model, had sometimes generate six fingers, four fingers, or sometimes, uh, is that a really a hand? <laughs> because there are some inherent limitations in the model. It has been rectified, but all I'm saying is, if you know, if you start learning about how these technologies work, not on a technical, super technical level, but knowing also the limits of these technologies, then we're not at a fog of war. You kind of know the landscape of where uh, this uh, issue kind of lies ahead. You know, Fred, are you, are you teaching your students that there at the law school as far as, I mean, is it like a full-on course or is it just kind of integrated into courses or what? It, it all depends on what we're talking about. We're trying to integrate basic technology into the relevant courses. We have a specialized course that uh, we and uh, one of our colleagues, Professor Iria Jafrida, uh, with um, Professor Nicholas Vermeis from the University of Montreal created called AI and More. Um, Daniel is teaching what I think is probably a unique course in a law school uh, which is the technology of AI. Um, it's a course he's about to launch. And uh, of course, in our case, we teach what we call technology augmented trial advocacy, which is a trial advocacy course that not only includes the classic basics on how to try a case in a classic courtroom with no technology, includes everything up to and including um, holographic evidence at this point. And I think that's so actually, we're doing our best. Well, I think that's actually Sorry. a good segue. I do want to talk about, as I said, we mentioned at the, the top of the podcast that, you know, CLCT is doing a lot of um, cool things as far as not just the deep fakes, but you guys have this kind of courtroom, this new gen courtroom, right? You want to talk about that a little bit, Fred, about the, the, the courtroom and all the technology you have? Mm -hmm. 
the law school includes what is called the McLaughlin courtroom, which is generally regarded as the world's most technologically advanced trial and appellate courtroom, uh, which is quite literally accurate. In fact, some years ago, I was in Seoul and a justice of the Korean Supreme Court told me that all the South Korean uh, courtrooms with technology were copied from us in particular. And the courtroom was in particular, of course, not in use during COVID, and now we're rapidly working to upgrade it. But our technology includes things such as, as far as we know, we have the world's only capability to have life-size, three-dimensional, uh, remote holographic witnesses, participants, evidence. Um, yesterday afternoon, as we were continuing our upgrade process, courtesy of a, and the, and the, I should say that the hologram is made possible by a company called Proto. And yesterday afternoon, um, colleagues from FTR, which is the world's largest court record company, were giving us the ability to have an AI-based automated speech-to-text transcript, um, which when you click on a word on the electronic transcript, you immediately can go to the audio and the video as well, which gives you 100% accurate. So we've gone doing our best to ensure that we have modern technology, including, for instance, technology for people of difficulty, seeing, moving, hearing, and far more accessible technology is critically important to keep uh, everyone able uh, to have their day in court. It also makes it possible for those who cannot see, cannot hear, to be judges and lawyers and so on. So that's our courtroom. We're very proud of it, and we spend a great deal of effort trying to keep it at the cutting edge. You know, a couple of follow-up. I mean, our, our actual trials being held there it's not this is not mock trials or any of that type of stuff i mean are you actually holding trials we have no we have done experimental um cases um with sitting federal district judges and such but as you know the difficulty of moving an actual case including a jury is rather difficult um we have had um, a number of administrative hearings in the courtroom without naming a rather prestigious uh, um, agency slash court from Washington, we're in discussions about they might come down and actually hold a real case with a remote holographic uh, participant from another country. But we are largely limited to experimental cases or, of course, cases we're using with our own students to help teach them how to best use this. Yeah. So I'm going to talk a little bit. I mean, the holographic evidence or the, the, the witness, I think, is is very, very cool. Very interesting. How does that, Daniel, what's what's the technology behind that? Like, do you, how do you what, how do you do it? You got to go and set up a camera at the person's house. Like, how do you even project that person holographically into the courtroom? Certainly. So uh, there's two components to uh, to make this work. One is what we call the beaming station or where the video uh, originates uh, and that gets transmitted into the second component, which is the, the hologram uh, uh, component. And in essence, uh, 
a very high quality video footage of the person beaming into the hologram uh, gets prepared. A very high quality camera uh, that is shot in 4K and the 4K video gets directly transmitted into the to the um, to the to the hologram device and uh, people who have been zooming or team video meeting will be very skeptical and i was skeptical myself it's like well it's just a bigger video transmission device uh what's so uh great about it and the combination of resolution the the, the quality the color saturation um, also, uh, because the person is usually at a white background, the white backgrounds uh, kind of tends, tends to key off or just like in the weather, when you're seeing a weather forecast, the, the meteorologist is it's in front of a green screen. Imagine there's a white screen behind it that gets blended nicely into the hologram to a, a point where it really appears as if the person is inside the uh, inside the device and interacting with it. Um, because it's a full body projection uh, for witness testimony, for example, you get to see whether if the person is nervously, uh, you know, uh, twiddling their sums, for example. You can read the whole body uh, language uh, for evidentiary, remote evidentiary purposes. So um it's one of those I, I hate to say this uh to people but it's one of those things where take a look at it and judge for yourself i was uh, i'm continuously impressed by it and it may uh, have a greater role in our uh, legal system it uh it, it may be that for those of you viewing this that we're at this point showing the picture but as far as the origination it should be noted at least the company, Proto, says that it is possible to originate just using a cell phone. Um, our experience has been a fair amount of light is desirable. And of course, you want your remote individual to be able to see what's going on in the courtroom. So we also display the image from the courtroom on a flat panel in front of the individual. All of this, of course, is dependent on the internet. So the information goes to a server, which I believe is in Los Angeles as a rule. And from there, it goes to wherever the courtroom is, which in our case is in Williamsburg, Virginia. Uh, the individual, um, if this is a person, I'll get to that in a second, is, appears in what we call an epic, which looks like, if you're not seeing a picture, a rather large uh, phone booth. And the individual, as Daniel says, is available life-size. And from our experience, is pretty much that The image is not different from watching the human being in the witness stand. I think for demeanor evidence purposes, pretty much the same. Now, from a legal perspective, I'd note this is a fundamental question. As most lawyers who are listening or judges um, pursuant to the Sixth Amendment's Confrontation Clause, it is customarily unconstitutional to have a remote prosecution witness. No problem with a remote defense witness. Now, this is in criminal cases. The argument that we think we can make is that given this technology, a remote holographic witness is for all practical purposes the same as being physically in the courtroom if we do it right. Should the Supreme Court ever accept this argument, 
that would open the door to fully remote criminal cases. Now, of course, for civil cases, we don't have a Sixth Amendment issue. On the other hand, we certainly have the interests of counsel in winning the case, and this is particularly persuasive. Now, it's not just human beings, whether they are witnesses or counsel, because you can also have your evidence presented in this. And the company, in fact, has a much smaller and thereby cheaper unit called a mini, which has been used, for instance, to show incredibly expensive uh, paintings at auctions. You can read about this in the Wall Street Journal and other, other media. And that means we could have um, 3D evidence right in front of a jury without them having to physically handle something, which also would give the potential ability to give that to juries during deliberations. So we're not yet sure what the limits are of this technology. We're hoping that in the year to come, we'll be able to do some proper experimental work and see what the, uh, what's the relationship between how jurors would react to a in-person witness versus Zoom versus hologram. Yeah, and as they say, probably stay tuned. Yeah, and, and I definitely want to have you guys back on for that because you read my mind because my I was going to ask, you know, whether or not you've done any research on what jurors thought about the different variations of, you know, witnesses and whether or not they see a holographic witness as the same as someone who's actually in person or if it still has that disconnect between like what we have through Zoom and, and other aspects. I, I could tell you, by the way, that years ago, we did do what I think is the foundational research in remote witnesses. Now, what we do well, our particular experimental design was we assumed a civil case. We assumed we needed an expert witness, a medical doctor. So what we did is we had the medical doctor either in the courtroom or remote. Uh, we weren't using anything like Zoom. We were using high-end video conferencing technology. So we had the witness life-size on a, a flat panel right behind uh, in the witness stand on the wall. And what two years of controlled scientific research indicated that so long as the witness was life-size in the witness stand, we got exactly the same result out of the jury as we did if the doctor were physically in the courtroom. Now, we did, we did a civil case and we did that so we could quantify by jury verdict uh, what the impact was. Now, this was years ago. We feel a lot more comfortable running it again and hopefully we will. Uh, but that's also why a fair number of courthouses, especially in the US, follow our general design, which is large flat panel right behind the chair where the physically present witness would testify. Now, by the way, we never did the research to determine what happens if you roll a TV screen in the middle of the courtroom or something. We don't know what happens there. We do know that our particular design seems to work. There you go. Now you got some more research on your hands than to do, huh? Right. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm gonna. I'll keep, I'm not gonna keep you any longer. I appreciate it. This is a fascinating discussion. I could have gone on for hours talking with you guys, uh, but I do want to. I do want to let you go first, uh, Daniel. If anybody wants to reach out to you and talk to you more about this, about AI and about deep fakes, how do they get a hold of you? Sure. Um, first, I'm on LinkedIn. 
although there are a lot of uh, Daniel Shins out there, and we are an amazing group of people, uh, maybe because of our name, commonality. Yes, I met a Steve Wood the other day, actually, so. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I, you know, as Fred mentioned earlier, I, uh, you know, write a a monthly uh, cybersecurity and information security newsletter, which also gets shared on LinkedIn. Please feel free to sign up if you're curious about, I do cover AI, but I do cover, I write it in a way that is very accessible for non-technical audiences, or at least I try to, uh, and dive into uh, some uh, legal issues of, of the story that I cover. Um, also, uh, and Fred will mention that we have our CLCT website, which is legaltechcenter.net, uh, where you can find all of our portfolio of work, uh, announcement news uh, that people uh, can uh, definitely uh, check us out. Yeah, I do. I would say check that out. I, I, I took a look at it. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff up there. It talks about, you know, CLCT and all the, the great things you guys are doing. Um, what about you, Fred? How do, how do people get a hold of you if they have questions, want to talk more, want to probably have you come speak a little bit more about uh, all the expertise you have? We, of course, are part of William Mary Law School. The Center for Legal and Career Technology is a joint initiative of the law school, which is the oldest law school in the country, by the way, along with the National Center for State Courts, which is physically right next door to us. So besides the email address, which is file at wm.edu, all you have to do is do a quick search for either CLCT or Letterer at William & Mary, and you'll find us. Excellent. Like I said, once again, greatly appreciate both you guys coming on a fascinating discussion. Probably have you touch base, have you come back in a little bit. Once you have some more information, we'll talk more about the research and all the other excellent things you guys are doing there um, at CLCT. So I would encourage everybody uh, to go to courtroomsciences.com as well. A podcast, our articles, other aspects up there as it relates to anything litigation psychology. This has been another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences.